Thank you, Tom and family. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7 in our Bibles. It's good to be home. Appreciated that song very much. And uh, you all did a wonderful job singing this morning. And uh, I just loved hearing you sing. John chapter 7, we took a few weeks to go through John chapter 6, 71 verses in one chapter, and uh, we are making our way through here in our study of the Gospel of John. Uh, Much of the Gospel of John includes uh, much of Jesus' teaching. Um, Some of the other Gospels have more emphasis on the miracles that he did. Uh, The Gospel, according to John here, records a number of his miracles, that's true, but it also spends a lot of time recording his, his actual teaching. And, if, and I encourage you to pay close attention as we go through our study here in John, because you'll really get a very good feel and a very good sense and understanding of what Jesus was going through uh, during his earthly ministry. Uh, here in chapter 7, by this time in chapter 7 of John, Jesus has already been uh, ministering on earth for over two years, and he, only, he doesn't have much time left on earth at this point. Many think he was about 33 years of age, or just about to turn 33 at this point in John chapter 7, which means that he only had about six months left of life on earth, um, and we're only in chapter 7. There's 21 chapters. Uh, chapter 7 down through chapter 10, all of those chapters has the, have uh, cover a period of time of just his... Uh, staying in Jerusalem for the Feast of, uh, of Tabernacles. And, um, and so it's, it, it's, it's a lot of teaching. It's a lot of Jesus teaching. It's a lot of conflict. It's a lot of turmoil. Um, Cindy and I were, uh, we went, and so, went to Sight and Sound on our anniversary out in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and we watched a play that had to do with Jesus. And uh, I thought that was a tall order to... To measure up to for those folks. And it was very, very well done. It, it, it blessed our hearts. But as I, I pondered what they were doing, what they were acting out, and was it scriptural? Was they, were they accurate? Were, and thinking of the challenge that they had to, to do this, it, it also highlighted for me the turmoil that Jesus went through. Um the suffering that he went through. And not just on the cross, but uh, for the years of his ministry and the rejection, uh, the hatred, the talking and the murmuring about him. And uh, it was a, the play was especially a blessing to me, I think, because of my recent study and our study together on the Gospel of John. And uh, many of the parts of the play were very fresh in my mind because we had just, I just preached through them. And, uh, and so as we look at these verses, there, there's no miracles per se that we're going to look at this morning. But I hope that you do not miss um, the love of our Lord 
who is willing to endure what you're going to read about this morning for the salvation of your soul because he loved you that much. And uh, so... Chapter 6, I'll not go all the way back through it. Chapter 6, of course, Jesus fed the multitudes. I told you and the, uh, the other gospel, accounts of the gospel tell us that he fed 5,000 men, not counting the women and children, so we think it was much more than that. And, of course, the people, they followed him across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum there, and Jesus was teaching, and they came to him. You remember what they wanted from him in Capernaum? What were they after? you remember? It's been a while, been a couple weeks. They wanted food. They were hungry. You fed us, you fed us with uh, five barley loaves and two small fish from that small boy on the other side of Galilee. Well, here we are. We found you again. Can't you feed us again? You remember they actually brought up Moses and they said, you know, Moses fed all the people of Israel with manna from heaven. You know, so it was almost an inference that Jesus, what you did wasn't that impressive, uh, almost goading him to feed them again with something better or something different or just take care of their physical needs. And, uh, you know, Jesus had came to give people life. The people who were talking to Jesus in chapter 6, they wanted life, but there was a difference in their interpretation of life. Jesus came that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly, that they might have eternal life. The people on this earth that talked to Jesus on those, in those days, they wanted life, but what they meant by that was they wanted, they wanted a meal, they wanted things, they wanted stuff of substance in this temporal life. They were consumed with the material. And you and I are tempted to be consumed with the material, I think, as well, aren't we? We're, we're tempted to, to dwell on the material and be consumed with the material and long for the material and minimize the spiritual and minimize the eternal. In, in John chapter 6, uh, you remember the followers were impressed with Jesus, but because of food. In John chapter 7, we're going to see, we're actually going to be introduced to some of the brothers of Jesus. You know that he had brothers, don't you? They were all younger than him. Um, he had siblings, younger brothers. And they were impressed with Jesus too, but we're going to read some very, very sad words about them in John chapter 7. And that is that they didn't believe upon him. Now, a couple of them we know would come to believe upon him. But there were a couple of Jesus' younger brothers who at this point, Jesus is about 33 years old, they didn't yet believe in him. They had some doubts. They weren't sure he was the Messiah. Okay? They were impressed with him because he could gain multitudes. He could gain a following because he was impressive. And I'll say this, the whole country was talking about Jesus, okay? That's how popular he was at this point in his life. The whole country was talking about him, not all positively either, by the way. And we're also going to see another group of people here, and they were religious people, and they too were impressed with Jesus because of his understanding. Now think with me for just a moment. There were the people who were impressed with him because he could feed thousands of people with a small lunch, but they didn't believe. We see his brothers who were impressed with him because he could gain a following, because he was a popular person. But they didn't believe. There were religious people who were impressed with Jesus because he, he could speak and he could communicate. And not just uh, as a public speaker who was regurgitating notes, but he, Jesus, had incredible understanding and knowledge and wisdom. 
and they actually say, this guy's from Galilee. Where He never went to school. How did he learn how to talk like this? How did he learn these things? They were impressed with him. But they didn't believe upon him. And so this morning as we ponder this passage together, ask yourself the question, am I a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he my Savior? Look at chapter 6 for just a moment in verse 66. It says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ. The Son of the living God. We believe. We believe that you are the Christ. In contrast to that, we're going to see these other groups who were impressed with Jesus, but did not truly believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, as we look at your word this morning. May our hearts be drawn out to worship you and to love you. So many in this room, Lord, are genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are our Savior, our Lord. We love you. Lord, we often fail you. We fall short, and yet you are our Savior, and your mercies are anew. And we will sing of those mercies for all of eternity. Thank you for loving us, coming to this earth to become our sin, so that we might have life. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for enduring. Uh, Father, help us to endure, I pray. Strengthen us. Teach us now, I pray, by your spirit, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at chapter 7, would you? Chapter 7, verse number 1. It says, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, which that would be the religious center of Judaism, which would be Jerusalem and Judea to the south of Galilee. Why? Because the Jews sought to kill him, it says at the end of verse 1. Verse 2, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren, therefore, said unto him, this is, this is his, these are his brothers talking to him in verse 3. They say to Jesus, depart hence and go into Judea. In other words, go to the heart of Judaism that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. If you're really Messiah, go prove it. If uh, you really want a following, because remember, people were, at the end of chapter 6, those who had been impressed by him had now walked away from him. They weren't walking with him anymore. He was losing his following in large part. His brothers had been, they were the younger brothers of Jesus, this man who all of the country is talking about, all the country is impressed with, or at least they all have an opinion about him. He is, he is somebody, but now his following is falling away from him. And so his brothers offer him some advice. Why don't you get back in the game? 
Go down where it's a happening religious area and do some impressive things that you can do and you can get your following back. Okay, Worldly wisdom there. Look at verse number 5. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. You can go if you'd like. Verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? Notice now the religious leaders of Israel are seeking him. They're looking for him, not to worship him because they want to kill him. Verse 12, And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. He wasn't even there yet, for some said, He is a good man. Others said, nay, but he deceiveth the people. People were, some were saying he's good, some were saying he's a liar. He's a liar. How, would, how do you like to be called a liar? How many of us here like that? All of us here have lied. <laughs> we, all of us here, I suppose, could be called that. And rightfully so, at times in our lives, Jesus never lied, but they were saying, this man's a liar. The word of God, God in their presence, and they're saying he's a liar. Verse number 13 Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews, the, the religious leaders. Verse 14, Now about the midst of the feast, day four, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go ye about to kill me? And the people answered and said, Thou hast a devil. They look at Jesus. Now they've already said, You're a deceiver. Now they look at him and say, This man's demon-possessed. You get, you get the idea of the turmoil. Can you imagine? And I'm reminded of John 1. He came unto his own. And his own what? Received him not. Talk about heartbreak. Talk about rejection. Who goeth about to kill thee? Verse 21, Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work. He refers to a couple years prior. To something they had done. He healed that paralyzed man of 38 years. He says, I've done one work, and ye all marvel. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers, and ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me, because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Judge not according to the appearance. Don't come to a conclusion based upon an outward appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Look back at verse number 1, and we're going to work our way through this passage in the time that we have. Verse 1, I think, really helps us understand. It really describes the atmosphere where Jesus was at at this point. 
Look at verse 1. It says, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. That's hostility. Okay. The religious leaders of Israel wanted Jesus dead. They were looking for him. Uh, they They were aware of him. They hated him. They wanted him killed. And this was the hostility, and it was growing uh, toward Jesus. It was growing more and more intense, and Jesus, I think, was surrounded by turmoil. I talk about stress. Uh, some of us in this room have different things that can cause us stress, and different things can come into our lives that cause us stress. Jesus was at a point, a 30, 33-year-old man, and he's facing this turmoil, stressful situations, unrest, But I believe that Jesus was poised, and I believe he was calm during this time. I I gather that by just the words that he speaks. Many of the people around Jesus were perplexed. They didn't know what to make of him. There were all different kinds of opinions about him. Some of his followers had gone back to walk with him no more, as I already read to you back in chapter 6. His enemies were becoming more and more bitter and more and more hostile toward him. Controversy was surging around him. He's engaged with, in discussions with people who hate him. You like talking to people who don't like you. You know they don't like you. You like that? Some of us don't even know what that's like. You know, it's happened a couple times in our lives. Um, even the thought of someone not liking us can get us riled up. You know, they don't like me. Well, these people hated him. And he's engaging them in conversations. He's, he's coming to his own. He's seeking to win the lost. He's speaking to them that they might believe that he is the Christ. So he's talking to these who are his enemies. He's in discussions with those who are, have genuine questions, are inquiring about him. And tell me more. Like, like Nicodemus. How can a man be born again if, without going entering a second time into his mother's womb? And Jesus is having all these different conversations. People who are legitimately seeking him. And, and then he was having discussions with those who were his followers, who believed upon him but had all kinds of questions. You know, there's only so much time. And Jesus is engaged in all of these things. Look at verse number 2. Now the, feast, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. The Feast of Tabernacles, and there were, I think, seven different feasts the Jews would celebrate or would uphold. The Feast of Tabernacles was a time of celebrating God's guidance and God's provision for the nation of Israel. Back when Israel had wandered through the wilderness for 40 years and God provided for them. They were a nomadic people in those days. There was no, there was no Jerusalem in those days. There were no... Uh, fence cities or walled cities that they were the inhabitants of. And you remember, they're, they're being led by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day and uh, for a time, and they're being fed from manna by God from heaven. And, and they're wandering in the wilderness waiting for people who would not trust the Lord to die. And it would have been a time of, of uh, uncertainty within the nation of Israel, and God had proved himself strong and mighty, and he had... He had he had stayed with them, and he had guided them, and he had provided for them. And, and so this Feast of Tabernacles was something that pointed the people of Israel back to what God had done for them. And it also reminded them that a Messiah was going to come, the Messiah. 
was going to come someday, and he was going to be their deliverer. The Feast of Tabernacles lasted for eight days. Okay, eight days. The Jews would live in booths made from branches, temporary booths made from branches, to remind them of God's providential care for those 40 years. And following the Feast of Trumpets and the Solemn Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles was a festive time for the Jewish people, and the temple area would be illuminated with with candles and torches of different kinds, candlesticks. It would remind the people of the fire, the pillar of fire by night and its guidance and deliverance for their people. Every day the priest would draw water from the pool of Siloam and they would pour it out from a golden vessel and they would remind the people of Israel of uh, when Moses struck the rock and the water came out that nourished the entire nation. And so the Feast of Tabernacles was a jubilant time for the people of Israel. It really was a time of celebration, but it wasn't for Jesus, not this year. Not this year, because the people were openly hateful against him. They were militantly opposing him. And ever since Jesus had healed the paralyzed man on the Sabbath day, the leadership had been seeking to kill him. Uh, Look again at verse number 1. It says there near the end, because the Jews sought to kill him. Look down to verse number 19 in chapter 7. Verse 19. It says, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keep it the law? Why go ye about to kill me? Jesus asked them. And the people answered and said, Thou hast a devil who goeth about to kill thee. Look down to verse 25. Verse 25. Then said some of them of Jerusalem, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? Look down to verse number 30. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. So they were trying to do it, but God wasn't allowing it. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Look at verse 44. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. In chapter 8, in chapter 8, in verse 37, he says, I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. And then in verse number 40 of chapter 8, he says, But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God, this did not Abraham. So I think it's very clear They were opposing him. They hated him. They wanted to kill Jesus. But it wasn't his time yet. It wasn't time yet. And so, without question, the religious leaders of Israel wanted Jesus dead. And so Jesus stayed away from Jerusalem. But he could not keep the Feast of Tabernacles and stay away from Jerusalem. And so we see that Jesus comes to Jerusalem, and he would be there for some days... Uh, and the full story is told of all of this time frame. For the days that he's at Jerusalem, it covers chapter 7 all the way through chapters 10. Chapter 10. All these chapters are this one event here at the Feast of Tabernacles. Look at verse number 3, back in chapter 7, verse 3. His brethren, therefore, said unto him, his brothers come to him and say, say to him, Depart hence. Go to the Feast of Tabernacles and go into, into Judea, is what they're saying, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. Now, multitudes of people were, were coming from all over Israel to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. 
thousands upon thousands upon thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of people were all converging on Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was perhaps, I think, the most joyous of all of the feasts of the year. It lasted seven days plus one, and the first seven days were strictly uh, ceremony. Uh, they were, there was a lot of ritual, very elaborate, the first seven days. But the final day was less of a ritual, more rejoicing, uh, more maybe enjoyable overall for the people, more festive, I could say it that way. And so you have all these caravans of people, and they're making their way toward Jerusalem for the feast. And, and Jesus' brothers come to him, and they offer him some advice. And you see the advice at the, the end of verse number 3. They say, depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. Jesus' brothers, his younger brothers, they come to him and they encourage him to go back to Judea so that those who had witnessed Jesus' miracles earlier, a couple of years earlier, could see his power. So that their interest in Jesus would be rekindled so that they would begin to follow him again and remember, those early followers of Jesus hadn't seen him in a couple of years. And so Jesus' brothers are saying, get back into the spotlight. Go back where the, the, everything's happening and do something impressive so that all you'll, you'll regain your following. Look at verse number 4. In this, verse 4, Jesus' brothers, their advice to him could probably be good advice for building a business or advertising today. Maybe Facebook. How many followers do you have? How to get followers? Look what they say, verse 4. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If you want people to know about you, you better do it loud and proud out in the open. That's what they're saying. Now, of course, Jesus had taught his disciples when they prayed to go into a closet where no one could see them and talk to their heavenly Father in private. Because God seeth in secret. It's true, people only see what you do out in the open, isn't it? They don't see what's done in private. And for some of us, we're all like, yeah, they don't see what we do in private. And then all of us could also say, yes, thank God, no one sees what we do in private. All of it anyway, you know. Jesus hears this from his brothers. This man, this worldly wisdom, there is no man that doeth anything in secret and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. If you are Messiah, if you are who you say you are, then you need to go back to Judea, and you need to get in the center of everything, and you need to do miracles like you did with the feeding of the multitudes, so that people will believe upon you and begin to follow you again. Now, do you think that his brothers had, do you think Jesus' brothers had his best interest in mind, yes or no? I think so. I do. I think they did. I think they did. Um, I think they were limited in their wisdom because of unbelief. Did they know God's plan for Jesus? No. They didn't know God's plan. I think they wanted Jesus to be popular. I think they wanted Jesus to be liked. I think they wanted to be the younger brothers of Jesus who was popular and well-liked. Okay, I think that's what they wanted. Just like you remember when he fed the multitudes... And they, they moved, they began to talk about making him kings. They, king, they wanted to force him to be a king. Why? Because he had fed them. He had taken care of them physically. They're physical, the temporal. Everybody's always consumed with the temporal, the carnal, and the 
in the immediate. And we are not all that different from that. So they're saying, if you, if you plan to get your following back, you've got to get back out there and show yourself off a little bit. You've got to promote yourself. What was behind the advice of Jesus' brothers? We don't have to guess. Look at verse 5. It says, for neither did his brethren believe in him. Jesus' brothers did not believe that he was God at this point. Are you following me? Jesus' brothers did not believe that he was God at this point in their lives. This had been prophesied in Psalm 69 in verse number 8. The Bible says this, I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. They don't know me. They don't know who I am. They don't know me. Jesus was born of a virgin, Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was the oldest. Mary, of course, married Joseph. They had children together. And so these brothers of Jesus would have been, would have been uh, his stepbrothers, if I could say it that way, or his half-brothers. Brothers of the same mother, but different fathers. In fact, the, the psalm I just read to you, Psalm 69 and verse 8, tells us that. He says, I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. It doesn't say my father's children. No, because his, Jesus' father was God. Uh, his brother's father was Joseph. Okay, So these were actually younger brothers of Jesus. And the Bible tells us of James and Jude. They were brothers of Jesus. And they would later believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. There, there probably were others. Luke tells us that Jesus started his earthly ministry at 30 years of age. At the time of this event, here in John chapter 7, Jesus is 33. And so his younger brothers may be 31 or 29 or 30. I don't know how old they were. They, they were Jesus' earthly brothers. And I want to emphasize that. They had grown up with Jesus as boys. Think about this. They had played with him. They played together. And their brother was Jesus. Jesus, let's go out and play. Let's play hide and seek. That must have been unfair. You know? I wonder if he wanted everything. I don't know. Ever been, ever been married to a... You ever had a sibling that was like the goody two-shoes? Did you? My sister Heather is a good person. She used the goody two-shoes. And it's a compliment. I'm complimenting her. But she had a conscience that was razor sharp. And sometimes it bothered me. Do we have to tell mom and dad everything? You know? Can you imagine being Jesus' younger brother? Was Jesus honest, yes or No. Was he honest all the time? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he always told the truth. Wow, that might have, might have been difficult to live with. By the way, there have been prophets throughout Israel's history. Jesus certainly had power. People were, Nicodemus, remember, comes to him and he says, I know that nobody does this without the power of God upon him. I know there's something impressive about you, but he didn't know that yet that he was God. He hadn't come to that point of faith yet. And so many, many people were impressed with Jesus. And I think his brothers were impressed with him. But they were not believers in him at this point in their lives. 
And so they're coming to him, and, and I think they have Jesus' best interest in mind. Get back out there, do something great, impress the people. You know, they would have known Jesus better than anybody else on the face of the earth outside of his mom and dad, probably. They would have, 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 have witnessed many of Jesus' miracles. I think they were there in Cana for when Jesus turned the water into wine. Jesus' mother was there, you remember. And they'd witnessed that very first miracle. They had witnessed his righteousness all through his life. They know, they knew that he always did the right thing, even if they thought it was wrong. They always knew he did the right thing. They knew him better than anybody else in the face of the earth, and yet they had not believed upon him. You know what that tells me? It's possible for people to come to a church like Trinity Baptist Church. It's possible for children to grow up in a home the Bible is taught even, or where a person is exposed to the truth and yet not genuinely be a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ themselves. Moms and dads, can I encourage you not to just take for granted the salvation of your children? Don't just chalk it up, well, they prayed a prayer, I was there. Like, you're going to stand before God someday with them and say, Now, Lord, I was there. I heard him say the words. I'm sorry. Saying the words is not enough. Or, well, we, they graduated from Christian school. Or they were a good kid. Or they say they believe in Jesus. All of these people, I think, to a degree, I think Jesus' brothers would have said they believed in Jesus. They believed he was impressive. They believed he was an incredible person. They believed that he was a popular person. They believed that, he would, that people uh, thronged to him. They believed that he was a controversial person. But at this point, God says they did not believe in him. And the difference was they believed in him as a man. They didn't believe him as, in him as God. That's the difference. I'm not saying that Jesus' brothers were hostile towards him, but they were not convinced that he was the Messiah. They were not sure. And so they come to Jesus with this worldly advice, this wisdom of the world. And by the way, everything they said to me seems to be reasonable. It makes sense. In essence, all they're saying is, why are you staying here in obscure Galilee? If you are really the Messiah, go show yourself to the world. Show yourself to the masses. Obtain a following. Isn't that what you're after, Jesus? No, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Go get support. Impress the masses. I'm reminded of Hebrews 4 and verse 15, where, he said, where it says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. What did it mean to Jesus when his brothers came to him and said, Hey, go, uh, go do something special and get all the people impressed with you? I think that was temptation. Now, it wasn't, Jesus didn't give into it at all. But I think it was, in, in a sense, a temptation. I'm not saying he was tempted to do it. I'm saying it was a temptation. The advice of Jesus' brothers was wise, actually. If you want to promote your, your company, your business, if you want to get more business, you need to get your name out there. You need to, you need to have, build a reputation. 
Many people have built wonderfully successful businesses using this model. But this is not the model that Christ followed, and it's not the model that the followers of Christ should follow, and I mean in promoting ourselves. The goal of me as a man should not be to see how many followers I can get of me. Or of a pastor should not be to see how many people that I can impress and how many people I can get to love me and follow me and adore me. That is not what I'm supposed to be doing. We all like to be loved. We all like to be adored, don't we? And Jesus, of all people, should be adored, but Jesus is saying this is not... What you're after, what you want from me, is not why I have come. And look at verse number 6. Jesus says it this way. Jesus said unto them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. You, you can go anywhere you want to go. But Jesus is saying it's not the right time. There's coming a day when Jesus is going to return to the earth. And Revelation chapter 1 says this, Every eye shall see him. The word time in verse number 6 here is a reference to a specific time, a set time, a preordained time. God had ordained a time for Jesus to be lifted up, that he would draw all men unto himself. And Jesus is saying, this is not that time. It's not time yet. And meanwhile, that means he has to endure the hatred. He can't just flip a switch. Although I think in his humanity, he would have liked to. And set aside the controversy. Set aside the disagreement. And let's just all agree to get along. And let me just feed everybody and do all these things and just be popular. But he came to do the will of his father. And there was no other option for Jesus, okay? There was no other option to do that will. In fact, you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying and his disciples have gone to sleep. And he prays, Father, if thou be willing, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. That's hard to understand, i got to tell you. Jesus was God in human flesh. But in his humanity, and physically, he, as he prayed, he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. His humanity was breaking down under the load, the turmoil that he was enduring. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. And that wasn't just at the Garden of Gethsemane. That, I don't want to call it a battle, but that choosing of Jesus It was never in doubt. He continually, faithfully chose to do the will of his Father. He continually and faithfully chose to put his Father's will over his own will, before his own will. And you know what? That I can relate with on a different level, I think. But I can relate with that. My flesh is wicked. Jesus' flesh wasn't sinful. It was just flesh. He hungered like we hunger. He he grew tired like you and I grow tired. He felt some stress, like you and I feel stress in some ways. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. You and I sin sometimes, but the battle in some ways is similar. With flesh, with with ungodly flesh, we 
sometimes choose to put ourselves, what we will, our will, above the Father's will. Jesus didn't do that. And he's saying, the time has not yet come. He had made a similar statement to this with his mother in Cana, you remember. And, and in chapter, uh, in, in verse number four, Jesus' brothers had said, show thyself to the world. They literally say that. Those are their words. Show thyself to the world. Get yourself out there. And Jesus was saying here in verse six, my time has not yet come. Their time was always ready. And Jesus wasn't being mean or unkind. He's just stating a fact. They didn't have the same mission as he did. What was Jesus' mission? In John 4, in verse 34, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. In John 6, in verse 38, he said, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. How many times when I uh, when we were out in uh, on our way out to Pennsylvania, we stopped in New York. We left on Saturday. We stopped in New York, and I preached at a church I used to hold meetings at when I was in evangelism. And uh, they were celebrating their twenty-five year anniversary. Fast who planted the church is still there. It's a church of maybe a hundred people. It's a good church. They're very, they're very sincere, very loving, very kind people. They're a lot like you. And there was a man who was not there. Uh, Pastor Barner would have me back and our family back every two years or so, and I'd hold meetings for like Sunday through Wednesday or Sunday through Friday. And so we were, we'd been there about three times or more over about a seven-year period. And there was a man who wasn't there this time. His wife was there, but he wasn't there. His children were there, but he wasn't there. Because he's chosen and is choosing his own will over his father's will. And he hasn't come back to his father yet. And I was reminded that these battles are not just fought in the, mer- in the arena of a marriage. They're not just battles that are fought here at Trinity Baptist Church, but the battle of, am I going to choose my will, or am I going to choose the will of my Father, it's fought throughout our entire lives, all, over, all around this world, in different languages and different cultures, the followers of Christ have a choice. I can follow Jesus and submit myself to my Father's will, or I can follow myself and I can submit myself to my will. And Jesus says, not to do mine own will. That's not why I came, but to do the will of him that sent me. In John 6, and verse 40, it says, And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Why, why did Jesus come? What was his purpose? This was not his time. What was it? What was his goal? Why did he come? Luke 19, and verse 10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In John 12, in verse 32, Jesus said this, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. He came to save us from our sins. That's why he came. He came to die. He didn't come that time to become a king. He did not come that time to become popular. He did not come that time to impress people. That's not why he came. He came to die on a cross because our sins deserved death. 
Look at verse number 7. He continues. He's talking to his brothers. He says, the world cannot hate you. And I might qualify that and give you a reason why the world could not hate his brothers. Why? Because they were of the world at that time. They hadn't trusted in Christ. But me, Jesus says in the middle of verse 7, it hateth. The world hateth. Why? Because I testify of it. I give testimony of it that the works thereof are evil. The world hates me, Jesus says, because I'm telling them that what they're doing is wrong. How many of us like to be told we're wrong? <laughs> None of us. We all hate it. We hate it. We especially don't like it in our marriages when our spouses look at us with the look of, you're wrong. We bristle. It's annoying. You know, and that's, by the way, arrogance and pride on our part when we bristle and are annoyed by it because we're all wrong sometimes. But the world hated Jesus because he told them they were wrong. You can't work your way to heaven. You're not good enough. You're a hypocrite. I mean, these are the things he said. You, you're, you're, you want to kill me because I've broken the law of Moses, but, but you break the law all the time. Boy, did they hate him. They wanted to wipe him off the face of the earth. And they set out to do it. And God said, you're going to have the opportunity, but you're going to do it on my timetable. And you don't know the result of it. You don't know the end of it. So the world doesn't hate its own, but it hates those who reveal the evil that's hidden under a veneer of respectability. And that's what was happening here with Jesus Jesus was the supreme witness to their hypocrisy, this religious system, these, these religious Jewish leaders, their sin. And so the world, including the religious leaders at Jerusalem, they hated him so much. Look at verse number 8. He says, Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. He says, I'm not going to go yet. It wasn't time for Jesus to die yet. In John 12, and verse 27, it says, Now is my soul troubled, Jesus said these words, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Should I ask God to save me from doing his will? Because this is the whole point of my coming. I came to die. The time, the time would come for Jesus to be manifested in his glory when he would go all the way to the cross and, be buried, and die and be buried and be lifted up out of the earth, but it hadn't come yet. Look at verse 9. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. And then verse 10, but when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Now, I told you there are hundreds of thousands of Jewish people making their way to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's, there's a lot of excitement. You can imagine the children running around. Where are our children? I thought they were with your caravan. They're not. Whose caravan are you? can imagine there are people, the ladies are talking with one another and the men are talking and there's just and the sheep are, you've got animals and it's just a busy, busy time. There's a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, Jesus doesn't go up openly. I, I, I don't know says he goes up in secret. What does it mean by that? Does, did he wear a disguise? I, I, don't, I don't think so. I would imagine that he didn't take the normal route. I wonder if Jesus didn't go back through Samaria. I don't know that. I wonder. He goes back in secret. 
He wasn't looking to attract attention. He wasn't looking to make a scene. I imagine that he stayed off the usual route and just went back in secret. Look at verse 11. Then, verse 11, then the Jews, the religious leadership is what we hear when we, or we understand when we read the word Jews there. The Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? Now, the religious leaders, we're not just talking like a pastoral staff like Trinity Baptist Church. There's only four of us, and that's all there are, and we're, we're seeking someone out for nursery duty. Okay, that's not the idea here. The religious leaders within Israel, we're talking about the uh, Sanhedrin, we're talking about the Pharisees. We're talking about they had uh, temple police uh, to the tune of hundreds. They, would have, they worked in conjunction with the Roman government. Money was exchanged back and forth. Favors were exchanged back and forth. The religious leadership, Caiaphas was the high priest. It was not a, uh, it was a perverted system. Okay. They were in it for themselves. It was political it was material wealth and material gain. They were not righteous men. I think some were. Gen- I think many were genuine in their desire to to please God, but most of them had completely missed the Messiah. Okay, but they were not pure in their motives. Look at verse number twelve. While they're looking for him, verse twelve says, "And there was much murmuring among the people, hundreds of thousands of people coming to Jerusalem. There were much murmuring among the people concerning him, concerning Jesus. For some said he is a good man; others said, Nay, no, I don't think so. He deceiveth the people. Howbeit, when he, when no man, no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews." Because of the religious leaders, leaders hated Jesus so much, no one spoke openly about this. They spoke privately amongst themselves because the religious leaders hated Jesus so much. And so there's a lot of confusion during this time around Jesus. People are questioning him, and, and yet there's this curiosity about him. Nobody talks publicly about Jesus because they're afraid. Look at verse 14. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. So about four days in to the feast, middle part of the feast, Jesus begins to teach in the temple. He teaches even though they hate him. Knowing the hatred against him, Jesus teaches anyway. He had to teach. Verse 15, the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters? How many of you like English and grammar? Can I see your hands? Great. Twelve people out of over 250. All right. The word letters here in the Greek... The Greek word is grandma, grandma, and it not like grandma, your grandma who gives you gifts, but like grammar. We get our English word grammar from this Greek word, and we've all been in misery ever since. It says, and the Jews marveled, saying, how knoweth this man letters or grammar? How, how does this man have this wisdom, this, this intelligence, this understanding, this knowledge Having, look at what they say at the end of verse number 15, having never learned. So he's talking to a very, in, I don't want to say intelligent, educated, I'll use that word. He's talking to a very uh, educated group of people. He didn't just go to those who were uneducated, by the way. He goes to a very educated group of people, and guess what? They are impressed with him. They're impressed with him. They're impressed with his knowledge. They're impressed with his understanding. They're impressed with his wisdom. But they're not impressed with him. 
And I'm reminded again. In chapter 6, they were impressed with his abilities to feed thousands of people with just a small boy's lunch. But they were not impressed with him. They walked away. His brothers don't believe in him. They're not sure that he is the Messiah. They're not convinced, but they are impressed. He's going to be such a popular person. Get out there and do some more miracles. Stir things up. Get your following back. This is how you need to do it. So many people are impressed with Jesus, but do not believe that he is God. He is God. They were not impressed with the morality of his message. They weren't impressed with the truth, the content of his message. They were impressed that an uneducated Galilean, a man, a carpenter from backwards Galilee, could talk on their level. They were impressed by that. They were shocked by that. How, how could he speak so intelligently? How did he have so much understanding? How did he have so much knowledge? And you can just see this is rank with their carnality. Very similar to chapter 6. Look at verse number 16. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine, and the word doctrine means teaching. My doctrine, my teaching is not mine, but his that sent me. And by the way, this is the very first time that Jesus ever declared that everything he taught was directly from God. He would repeat this often for the remainder of his earthly ministry. And notice what Jesus emphasized when they're impressed by him. He emphasizes that my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Jesus emphasized teaching, doctrine. He didn't emphasize technique. He didn't emphasize sales tactics. He didn't emphasize ability. And I'm so thankful for that because every preacher and every teacher of the Word of God has a different ability. We all have different personalities. Have you noticed that? You've gotten this, you, you don't need an illustration for this. You had Pastor Burden last week and Pastor Scott the week before, right? How many of you know that we're different? Nobody? All right, you know it. We're different. And you know what? Different personalities, we, we kind of like that. We, we, kinda, we, get with, we get that a little bit better. Different humor. No humor at all. Right? Different lengths of time. There's all kinds of things we could talk about. But Jesus doesn't emphasize technique. He doesn't emphasize ability. He doesn't emphasize slick communication tricks. He doesn't emphasize the ability to entice people to buy things or even personality to persuade people to follow him and be committed to, to him. Jesus emphasized doctrine, teaching. Jesus preached and he taught the doctrine of his father. In our children's ministries, I don't want our children to be bored to death. But they need to learn to appreciate the Word of God. It's the Word of God. You know, why don't we... What's that show? I don't think they're making them anymore. What were the vegetables that were different Bible characters? Veggie Tales. I've seen one of them. And uh, I think it was Gideon. And I don't know what he was. A cucumber or something like that? I don't know what he was. Anyway, he was a tomato. No, I don't know. But it's... They're veggie tales, and they do Bible stories using vegetables. And it's humorous, I'll tell you that. But why don't we just show that? Why don't we show that, you know? God chose, and he calls it, the foolishness of preaching. And the, preaching, the foolishness of preaching is not the message. It's not the doctrine. I think the foolishness of preaching is this. 
chose us. He chose some of us to stand and to say, Thus saith the Lord. And folks, that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. And if that's what Jesus should, would, did, if that's what was important to him, that's what ought to be important to me. That's what ought to be important to every Bible teacher and Bible preacher of the Word of God, the infallible, inerrant Word of God. We're not preaching our own message. We're not preaching our own experiences. We're preaching what God has said, what he says. Jesus preached doctrine. He preached doctrine. Look at verse number 17. He says, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. Now, this is very important. We're not going to take a lot of time with it. This is huge. If any man will do his will, the will of the Father, he shall know of the doctrine, the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself. You know, it's, it's only as we completely yield ourselves to the, to the message of the word of God, to God. God of the message, that we know if what we're being taught is the truth. Over, over my life, and it doesn't, you don't have to take a lifetime to figure that out. I, I hear what the Word of God says. I believe it because the Bible says it. I believe it because the Bible says it. And as I obey what the Bible says, and I continue through life, I come to know by personal experience that this is true. I'm 40 now, and there are some things now in my life that I've been able, I could say, I've experienced that truth in my life. I've experienced the grace of God in my life going through different trials that when I was 27, I hadn't experienced yet. I really had no clue, but now I have. And that's true for you and for me. When, when God speaks to you by his word, take it, accept it, believe it, live it out. But you know what? As time goes on, you'll be able to look back and say, I have personally, and that's the emphasis here, it's personal. I have personally experienced that truth in my life. By the way, God wants truths, Bible truths to be experienced. Let's finish up in verse number 19. It says, did not Moses, verse 18, he that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory... That sent him, the Father, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Verse 19, did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? <laughs> that would have been offensive. Why go ye about to kill me? Now, remember, remember, please remember, there wasn't a Jew around that didn't honor Moses to the highest degree. They venerated him in many ways. God had used Moses to give the law, and the Jewish religious leaders considered themselves to be the custodians of Moses' law. They viewed themselves to be the interpreters of the law. They elaborated on its precepts, and they would parse the law. Uh, but Jesus says, you don't even keep it yourself. You don't keep Moses' law. In verse number 20, the people answered and said, Thou hast a devil, you're demon-possessed. Who goeth about to kill thee? Verse 21, Jesus answered and said to them, I have done one work. I healed one man. And that was what was bothering these people and ye all marvel. You remember Jesus had healed that man at the pool of Bethesda who had been paralyzed for 38 years. It was the fact, what, what was it that bothered them so badly about this, that Jesus had healed this man? I don't think their problem was because Jesus had healed someone on the Sabbath. I don't think that was their biggest concern, actually. I think it was the fact that he had done this miracle on the Sabbath deliberately. 
He went against them. That was their problem. And, and he did it without apology. He never came to them and said, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it. He did it with forethought. Jesus did it with intent. And then Jesus claimed that he had divine authority for doing the miracle. Again, Jesus, these people, many people were impressed with Jesus, but they rejected Jesus as God. You see that? They rejected his authority over them. Verse 22, he says, Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers, and ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. Now, remember, the Sabbath day said, keep it holy, don't do what you normally do. Every other day of the week, you don't do those things on the Sabbath. But there was another law coming down from the Abrahamic covenant through Moses, reiterated by Moses, and that was circumcision, that God's people, the people of Israel, would be set aside. That was for the nation of Israel. That is not mandated, circumcision is not mandated today for salvation, uh, for Gentiles, it's not mandated uh, in the Bible. But in these days, it was mandated. And the law required that a boy, after he was born, he would be circumcised on the eighth day. Well, the problem was this. That was the law. Well, what if your boy was born on a day, then eight days from that day, it was the Sabbath? Which law are you going to obey? You can have your boy circumcised on the eighth day and obey the law. But if you do that, you're going to break the law of the Sabbath. <laughs> so which one are you going to do? Well, they had worked things out, and they had decided their conclusion was the boys could be circumcised on the eighth day, even if it was the Sabbath day, and the priest that did the circumcision would not be sinning to do it, nor would the parents, nor would the boy. So they had determined that was the case. And Jesus, as he talks to them, he says, this is his whole point. Jesus points out, they're in, you're being inconsistent. You're, you're hypocrites on this. Verse 23, if a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision... That the law of Moses should not be broken. Are ye angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath? In other words, if the law of the Sabbath could be suspended to carry out a minor surgery in fulfillment of the law of Moses, how much more appropriate was it for Jesus to heal a man that had been paralyzed for 38 years? You can't suspend the law for a healing for a man paralyzed for 38 years who no one cares about? And they hated him for it. They hated him because he was declaring, he was establishing himself as the authority. And you know what? In their minds, they were the authority. They determined who was right and who was wrong. They determined that they understood. They were the ones who knew. And who was this backwards Galilean, to, this carpenter, to come and stand before them and exercise authority over them? They hated him for it. They wanted him dead. Verse 24, and we'll end with this. He says, judge not according to the appearance. Look not on the outward appearance. But judge righteous judgment. I'm reminded of that passage that we all, I think, have heard of that says, judge not that ye be not judged. Which means don't, you're not the authority over other people. You're not the judge, jury, or an executioner to determine who's right and who's wrong and who's going to heaven and who's not going to heaven and who's right with God and who's not right with God. That's not your job. Some of us, though, have used that verse and we apply it to our lives and, and the way we think, almost to say, well, everybody can do what they want to do, and it's okay. That's not what that verse was saying. And here Jesus actually says, judge righteous judgment. 
You ought to be discerning. And, and in the context here, it's these Pharisees and these religious leaders, they look so good. You all think they're so right. But you need to be discerning about what is actually true. You need to be discerning. And you know what? You and I are responsible for that too today. Judge righteous judgment. You know, I can't help but notice how painstakingly patient Jesus was with these hard-hearted, stubborn, and narrow-minded people. Jesus looked at them with mercy and compassion, and they looked at him with hatred and murder in their hearts. He came unto his own. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to his own. He's speaking the truth to them in love, the truth, and his own received him not. I'm reminded of John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Remember Peter as we close, in the end of chapter 6. Jesus looks at them and he says, Are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, Where else will we go? Thou hast the words of life. We believe that you are God. We believe that you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. You know, many of us are in that boat today. That's where we stand with Peter. We have come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ. He is the only hope for this life. He is the Savior of the world, and he is the lover of our souls, and we love him for it. Let's live like that. He suffered for you and for me. He endured for you and for me and for the honor and glory of his Father and the glory of his name. Let's you and I, maybe this morning before we leave this place, reconsecrate our lives to him and say, Lord, I've been tempted and I'm being tempted on so many fronts. My flesh is perfect. I want my way. I want my way. I'm consumed with my way. But Lord, not my will, not my way, but your will be done in my life. Let's pray.